0: All right, back on the Young Turks. Now joining me in studio, Jordan Klepper. I don't have my sound effects. Okay.
1: Can use them, you know. Just a little bit of pop in circumstance will do you good?
0: Yeah, God, Jordan, you're tall. How tall are you? Six four. Okay, yeah. It no is. Ch- yeah, yeah, no joke. If some would say too tall.
1: Yeah. Me, I would be one of those people who would say it. No. Er, er, can you, you
0: know, tell that in this chair? Yeah, you can tell it anywhere. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for keeping <laughs> an eye
0: out. Um. Uh, so Jordan, uh, of course, uh, was on the Daily Show, and then the opposition with Jordan Klepper on Comedy Central, mm-hmm. which I was on. You were yep. gracious enough to have me on there, uh, and now you got a new show come out called Klepper, uh, ingeniously named. Yep. Uh, you were on the show earlier when we were discussing the news, uh, and uh, somebody tweeted in that you're a god among men and women. Mm-hmm. We just got a tweet saying also children. Just oh. so you know. Oh you God! Know now that,
1: then, I, I think that degrades it. Oh, you think so? Oh, I th- now I feel like God, like. Men and women feel like willing with their consent. I don't mm-hmm. want to be a god among children.
0: Yeah, it does. It feels a little like you're in a playground, and it's weird. <laughs> yeah, right. Now it's cultish. <laughs> I think at one point it felt like sex
1: symbol. Now it just feels like, yeah, oh, yeah, now I'm yeah. praying on people. Okay. Which again, I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you for giving me that kind of power. But uh, <laughs> it's turning to the creep. Let's stop. Let's stop while we're ahead.
0: Okay, sounds good. All right, so uh, Klepper's a different show. It's uh, you know I'm reading about it. And I was like, "That's trippy. That's going to go on Comedy Central." Yeah. So tell us what it is first. Yeah, it's a it's a weird show for Comedy Central. It is,
1: you know, I was Daily Show, the opposition, the opposition. I'm behind the desk, uh, which I like. I like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's nice to talk about the world behind the desk, uh, but I miss being out in that world. So that was sort of our challenge. It's like I want to drop the sarcasm, I want to drop the irony, and I want to get out, find some compelling big stories. Uh, let's see if we can find some comedy there uh, organically, and what we found is we started just doing essentially documentaries on big topics. So we found stories that were compelling, uh, and often these stories were attached to activist movements. Either people who were activists who were fighting to change something, whether it was a personal thing or more sort of movement that they were behind, uh, and see if we could be in with them as close as we could to the front line. So right wing and left wing? Right wing and left wing, well, a lot of left wing movements, uh, but then we also looked at like the gun control issue is something I've covered a lot, and we looked at a couple open carry groups and spent time there. So it was an opportunity, some of these go more partisan than others, some uh, weren't partisan at all, a lot of vets issues, we, we aren't talking left and right, we're just, we're talking veterans and how do we deal with this issue.
0: Yeah, we, we got clips on both of those, let's go to the gun rights guys. So yeah. let's go to the first video here, I get a sense of it.
1: C.J. Grisham is riding a GT Timberline road bike with Michelin off-road tires with Trail Shield technology and packing a Blackjack Firearms AR-15 with a 30-round magazine. He's on a crusade.
2: I'm trying to say that not everybody that's got a gun is a threat to anybody, that this is what a good guy with a gun looks like. I've had more people yell at me and say bad things to me wearing a MAGA hat than I have wearing a rifle. With a MAGA hat, you're wearing a
1: logo that's connected to an ideology. That, that's a f*** threat. <laughs> I, just, it, it's, it's weird how some people feel that way. This is a show about activists. And as uncomfortable as I am around guns, some of America's most effective activists are the ones fighting to expand gun rights. And they aren't doing it with poster board.
2: I'm always trying to get rid of the shock factor of seeing a gun. I think people have been conditioned. Oh gosh, there's a guy with a gun. I'm gonna call 911. That's a good condition. Well, is it? When I see somebody going to church, I don't call the police and say, "Hey, they're exercising their First Amendment rights." Yeah, well, people and... aren't getting killed with churches around the country. Well, some people are getting killed in churches. <laughs> yeah, with yeah. guns. Y'all mind if I come in and get a drink? I've got a, I've got a rifle, but I'm not a threat. I just want to get a drink. I want a bike ride. By law, we can't. Oh no, by law you can't. I've got a license. You got a license. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You sure? Yeah, I can't have all these cameras in here, y'all.
1: <laughs> it's like cameras can't come in, but the, the AR can, you never know. Cameras can come in and shoot this place up.
0: <laughs> you know, I it's funny, I was seeing these things you were saying, I was like, wait, you are gonna let the giant weapon in, but not the cameras. Yeah,
1: they had the cameras, they're <laughs> like, we can't have cameras in
0: here. And then I even started talking to
1: her, and she made it clear she had a gun behind the desk as well. Oh, Good, because if in. there's
0: a shootout, everybody can use it. Oh, my guns. God, yeah,
1: I was the only person <laughs> in that convenience store without a gun.
0: Yeah, Jesus. Where was that?
1: Was so that was in Texas, I believe. That was outside. Um, of course, it was. I think that was Killeen, outside Killeen, Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's pronounced
0: killing. Oh, killing Texas. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's.
1: Oh, no nah, that makes so much more sense. Yeah.
0: So, uh, but they genuinely believe it, right? But so, Kate, I'm, it's obvious from that clip alone that you're having a real conversation with a guy. That he doesn't get that the thing that kills people inside the churches is the guns?
1: I mean, for him, it's, it's very much a speech issue. And I think that episode actually, Open Carry Texas has been very effective in Texas. Uh, he's out there. He's, we, we also go to a parade with him as he's passing out literature. They want constitutional carry. You know, he's probably a libertarian at heart, where he's like, keep your hands off of my guns and my laws. I want all the rights that this document has given me. And so, you know, Walking into a 7-Eleven with an AR is very different there than it would be in New York. And I do think in talking to other people, he doesn't feel like an outlier. So this, oh my God, don't you see these are the things that kill people is not a perspective that I would say he necessarily has. He's like, don't you think, don't you see these things, things that protect people, the things that we are guaranteed to have? And people like me, I'm responsible. I want to show others. Uh, and that I get. Again, sometimes where I, I get into a fight with somebody like CJ is I do think he doesn't talk about the way it limits speech when he walks in into a place, uh, and other people aren't able to engage with him that way. Uh, but, but what we try to do with this show is spend more time with these people, these activists to see how they get that point across, how it is effective, and how somebody like me who might have my own bias
0: goes into that and, and, and is surprised. Well I, I love when he was like, you know, uh, when I got the MAGA hat on, people yell at me, but not when I have the AR-15. Like there yeah. might be a very good reason for that. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of the stories. It's like you'd be
1: so surprised. People aren't freaked out by my gun. They're so kind and nice to me. You know. And you call that. out. And I think uh, often a lot of those folks are aware of that. They say like an armed society is a polite society. And <laughs> well, I guess I, that's I, one d- way of looking at I, it. I, I think. Yeah. But I don't know if I disagree with them on that.
0: If he falls off the bike, is there some chance that gun goes off? I think there's always a chance that gun goes
1: off. Uh, <laughs> and the bike was a, a move that he had because he wanted to. Again, normalization. He's like, he doesn't want people to fear him. What that episode goes a little bit more into is he said some pretty, uh, outlandish things online that are anti-cops. And he's been sort of, uh, on a, on a list there as a guy who is aggravating with cops. He's, he, he goes into places. Cops tell him to put his gun down. He won't put his gun down because he has a right to have a gun there. Uh, he's been harassed by them. Um, uh, we started to look in that episode as well with another group that was having similar issues and said similarly inflammatory things, but they're African American who don't necessarily get the same leeway as a group like CJ gets.
0: Oh, that's what I was going to ask you, and it's already in the episode. It's already in the episode. So oh, like, that's awesome. Okay.
1: It, that, that's what was compelling, too, because it, it wasn't just, oh, guns, take it to a place. That's interesting and weird. It was like, let's start with, like, you're an effective group. That day, we found there was a day in Texas where there were two open carry parades going on, essentially. Open carry Texas. Where they were they were attending a parade for constitutional carry, and a group called Guerrilla Mainframe was up in Dallas, and they were open carrying because of a recent shooting in Dallas of a police officer, of a, of a black man by a police officer, and so both of them were using these
0: guns as a way in which to amplify their message, but they were getting different responses. Yeah the least surprising thing I've ever heard, but I'd love to see it (laughs) on tape. Yeah, So looking forward to it. Uh, So you also talked to uh, people on the left, protests of the oil pipelines Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Native Americans, but different actually. Yeah. uh, Episodes, so tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so we did an episode with a group called Louis Levy, which was protesting in Louisiana the Bayou Bridge pipeline. Uh Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were curious about uh, what environmental protest looks like up close. and. They have a secret uh, camp, secret hideout that we meet them at. Uh, we meet them; they take us there. And I went out with them in the cover of night. To the intention was to go to the uh, to the pipeline site to tie themselves to the pipeline to stop uh, any kind of work for that day. What we ended up doing is going there. And around 4:35, when we arrived at the site, there was a uh, police boat that started to chase us. We sank and we swam out of the bayou and then to hide from the the police for the rest of the day. It was harrowing. I think, like, what we, what you quickly find out is activism is hard. And I don't agree with everybody's tactics that they have Mm. here. I think with all of this, it was like I'm compelled by people caring, people wanting to change the world that they're in. I'm, I empathize with that, and I'm impressed by that. Some groups are more effective than others. I think the pipeline protesters come out of a place of necessity, and I think that's inspiring to see. They don't always have the best path through. I find other protesters who are using clearer, direct actions and ways in which to like make. Their message very clear. But some people don't have the luxury of that, and they need to literally tie themselves to a pipeline just to try to get anybody to pay attention.
0: Look, I'm left wing, so uh I, I wish people would be affected. God, it's gonna be embarrassing when they sink. So why did they <laughs> why did they sink? What happened? I mean, I think so basically as we get <laughs> as we get chased,
1: we turn into a wake, depending on who you ask. Some think it was the security slash police boat that was trying to sink us. That has been known to happen in the past. Some say it was the the poor driving. It was the lack of preparations. The boats weren't prepped. It depends on who you ask. There. What what I took away from it was like this is an, this is a ragtag activist group that I think has a lot of gumption. And some people feel like they're there for the right reasons and have a lot of planning. Some people feel like they're there for perhaps other reasons. And I wish there were m- more plans attached to it. Like again, the necessity was 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 there, and I, I empathize with that goal. But when you're in the middle of the bayou, swatting bugs, hiding from police, like, I went and talked, like, that doesn't feel effective. And what I think was most interesting about that episode is I went and talked with another activist who does everything by the book, who goes out day in and day out. He's logging down whenever any of the oil companies make minor transgressions. And over the course of like an eight-month period, he might be able to make one small little change because he goes through the process. He's angry at the other left, uh, protesters who are doing more outrageous things. Well He's it's working, but it's working like this. You talk to the other environmentalists, we're like, we don't have time for these changes. We have to make big splashy changes. Yeah, I, I
0: see both sides. Yeah, I hear you. And and of course, at, at DAPL, it it did make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Those kind of tactics did work for a period of time until Trump won. Yeah, but they had gotten Obama to to stop the pipeline yeah. in, in DAPL. Yeah, and and if Hillary Clinton had won. She probably would have continued, but it's possible yeah. that she would have also stopped well, it. And sometimes <laughs>
1: the, just the fact that it became a national story is in of itself, per, perhaps a success. The fact that we're talking about it now, the, the national media was talking about it. I think like they would see
0: ways in which to get attention,
1: a, 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 any attention is good attention.
0: Yeah, uh, so by the way, the show is gonna be on on Thursday nights at 1130, right after Daily Show. But let's talk about your career a little bit. Um, Please. So how'd you get into comedy in the first place? Uh, I found myself
1: interested in improv in college. I was on the mm-hmm. improv team. Chicago was sort of the mecca of improv at the time. So yep. I went there and I fell in love with it. I started doing stuff at Second City and Improv Olympic. And there's a little bit of a path there where you see other people who have done this, who've gone through the Second City, the, Bill Murray's, the Tina Fey's, uh, and you kind of get enamored with uh, the potential there. Um, I had a little bit of success here and there, and then I found myself going to New York with the Upright Citizens Brigade mm-hmm. uh, and becoming an improviser, starting to do stand-up, starting to write on TV shows. And then eventually The Daily Show kind of came in
0: a mere 15 years later. So overnight success, just- Yeah, just you, like that, it's yeah. so easy. <laughs> so, yeah, Matt Walsh was in here the other day yeah. at, talking about the same trek in a sense in Chicago. So, did you grow up in Chicago or where would you grow up? Michigan. Michigan. So, okay. I grew
1: up in, yeah, Kalamazoo, Michigan, born and raised. Uh-huh. Went to college there as well. Uh-huh. And so, Chicago, a lot of people there either go to Detroit or Chicago if you want a big city. But Chicago was for improv at that time, especially. That, that was a mecca. I know, like, Matt was a great example. He came to Chicago. Uh, what he did there was incredible. Then he, he sort of brought that whole DNA to New York, that was the thing I sort of chased uh, probably a decade after Matt had left. But, yeah. but there is a little bit of a path there that people find if they're not quite stand-ups, but they like the world of improv, the world of like collaboration, and mm-hmm. find comedy in that, they often go on that path.
0: Yeah, so uh, when you first started, this I love asking uh, comics, comedians uh, this. Uh, were your parents like, oh yeah, that makes sense, George's a clown, or <laughs> or were they like, what are you doing? They were. I would. <laughs> I don't
1: know if they thought it made sense, but I think I I am I am blessed and very fortunate to have parents who never judged it. They I think they were. They had two other kids coming down the pike, so they were like, you know what, if he if it doesn't work for him, we got two other shots on this. Uh, <laughs> but I was. I, they love coming to shows. Like honestly, I think I commend my, my family for they show up. Mm-hmm. They showed up when I was this big, baseball games, teacher, parent-teacher conferences, and everything. And that happened all through the comedy world. So when I went to Chicago, I was like, I'm gonna do this. They showed up, they'd get in the car, they showed up at shows. They didn't. I don't know if they necessarily saw how it could be a profession, but they at least allowed me to kind of go down that path.
0: Did that freak you out at all or did you have anything dirty in your act? <laughs> <laughs> it, I was. I should have been
1: more freaked out because with improv, you go for whatever pops in your head. Yeah. And when you're panicking, and there's lights there, and there's people are not laughing, the first thing you think of tends to be genitalia. Uh, it tends to be yeah, obscenity. Uh, it tends to be humping whatever is nearby. And so that happens a lot in improv, especially early on in improv. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, they, I think they became a nerd to it pretty quick. For some reason, if if they're in a crowd where people are laughing at that, it seemed like it gave me a little bit of a cloak of invisibility. All right. I tell myself that.
0: Yeah, because I remember my great uncle, like, trying to explain to him what a talk show host is, and he said, mm-hmm. "Oh, so you're a Pagliaccio, and that means clown." And okay, and I was like, oh, "Not well, exactly, yeah. right?" <laughs> and then I remember when my parents came first came to hear one of my talk shows, and it was pretty raunchy back then, and I was like. Yeah, this got weird. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> "Oh, right. I'm
1: I'm <laughs> I wouldn't have normally said this in front of you, but for some reason because this is in a public setting, now it's okay." Yeah. But you get over that shame quickly, I think. <laughs> so what do you, what do you think helped you to break out? What, what how did I mean, yeah. I I hustled. I hustled for a long, long time. But that doesn't guarantee you anything here. There's still so much luck. I think it's hustle, be prepared, and then get lucky. I, you know, The Daily Show came about after I'd gotten close to a bunch of other things. For 15 years, getting close, having little jobs here and there. Uh, I was sort of in the right place. When John Oliver left, they were looking for somebody to fit a role like that. I kind of fit into the the type of comedy I would do—sketch comedy and improv—is playing things through a, a mask and a character, which The Daily Show does well. I was I was interested in the world around me and politics, and so uh, by the time I got that opportunity, which was a scary opportunity, it's a weird, wild audition. Like I had 15 years of failure behind me, so I was I was able to to succeed there, but. But I was lucky. It's it's not like oh I just did it and it was I was a natural. It's like no. I, I happened to fit. And I have to I I happened to be ready at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean I could say, I hear what you're saying. on being lucky. They uh, John Oliver's leaving, so they needed a gangly, uh, funny guy, they need, right? You know, <laughs> somebody who fits in the, in the suits. <laughs> right, but but uh, but I'm not buying it uh, because it's not lucky. I mean you did it for 15 years. So when, when you say be like you're being prepared, what does that mean? Well, I it? think it's like. In that moment, where I get it, which does
1: feel like it's a a 10 minute uh, moment of time that I spend with Jon Stewart, riffing with him, doing a thing I wrote, a thing that they wrote, excelling at those, and making it feel and look easy. Cuz at that point, there's Jon Stewart has a successful show, Emmy award winning show. He's done it for 15 years. He needs somebody to come in who can do this job tomorrow. And in those 10 minutes, I I, I could be that guy. I could have done that. And I did do that job four days later. but what it takes to get that is an audition process that was two months long of writing stuff, working stuff, sending in, hoping. Years before that of doing improv shows where you fail repeatedly, going into auditions, failing, getting close on auditions, learning not to care about stuff, at least in your head so that you're confident and open in that moment. Doing that for 10 years, seeing your friends get successful, your other friends not get successful, not giving up. And so I think by the time you walk into that Jon Stewart set and you meet him like, You're nervous, but you're able to fake your way through that nervous. And I'm able to know at the point, like, I know what you need. You need somebody who can do this. And that's not just because I happen to be lucky and good without working on it. I've worked on something that I've been good and bad at for 15 years. So in that moment, I'm lucky to be in this moment, but I'm also, I'm ready
0: because I've, I've been working at it for a long time. So, in a sense, you were jaded enough to to be able to do it. You had had enough nose.
1: It's, it's honestly, <laughs> it, I feel like it's sort of a BS piece of advice people often give in the entertainment world. Is like you have to walk in there and not care. I don't think I don't think that's quite right. Yeah, I think you have to walk in there and feel like your desperation is ugly. And I think like in those situations, nobody wants somebody who needs this so much. They want somebody who doesn't need it. I think that's. That's sexy as, as somebody who then got to hire people in there. Somebody walks in this room and looks like they don't care, and they're good at what they do. It makes you want them. Like, yeah, I think like I think that's yeah that 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 whole dumb dating book is all about that negging. <laughs> and I think like yeah. there's an element to that in audition as well. Yeah. It took a long time for me not to care. I don't think I ever didn't care, but I think I got to the point where it was like I'm confident enough with not being desperate in those situations. And I think that you have to get there.
0: Yeah and I think part of it is that you have to be you have to mind not mind losing right mm-hmm. in order to be able to be good enough confident enough they're like hey if I don't get it I don't get it I yeah. can live with it yeah. right what I can't live with is if I don't give them what I got yes and I think the
1: fear of not losing gets in the way, right? Yeah. Like with an audition, like, yeah. you're like, oh, I can do better than that. And that's often where you're like, because I'm overthinking. No, 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 no. It's like, oh, by the time if you put in the work, especially with like a daily show audition, you do put in a lot of work. You write, you rehearse. But by the time you get in there, you're like, me at my best is is not being overwhelmed right now by the situation.
0: How, how long did you prepare for the daily show
1: audition? So for that one, like you you write. You write, you, they send you an audition aside. You do that side. You also write your own one or two. Mm-hmm. I sent those in. I think they gave notes. I think I did a second round of sending them in again. And then they're like, you, they give you a date. You come in. I came in. I wrote one. And I think I, I had written it in a, like a two and a half day period. Cause at that point, they want to also know, can you write these things? It's essentially right. like, you need to be like, able to come up with something that's satirically funny and in your voice do it on this. I write a funny bit, I send it to them. They put it in the prompter and it's like, do it, you run it a handful of times at home. And I will say as an improviser, half of that is just like, oh, I have a prompter, I'm not worried about my lines, it's already half there, now I just need to stay open so I can riff. And yeah. John Stewart's a guy who wants to riff. So he immediately is, he's, he's trying to throw you off your game, and if you're able to, to bob and weave then then you're in a better place.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I just I love that moment of like when you get the call from The Daily Show and it was there a little bit of like, yes.
1: For the audition or yeah, for the, yeah, yeah. I mean- Oh yeah. both. For bo- I think like getting that audition, I, I remember that call when they're like, they wanna see because by the time they asked to go in to read with John, you've made it pretty far. They don't look at a ton of people to actually sit down with John. And so yeah. that call was like, oh. I for a while thought like I think I actually could do this, and I'm actually all right at this. So that yeah. call came in where you're like, you know that we actually want you to come in and do this. We think you could be good. Feels great. It's like oh, I'm not crazy. I, yeah. I knew I was okay. At when this. you got it, did you call everyone you know? With, I'm on
0: the Daily Show. I'm on the Daily Show.
1: <laughs> you immediately you, you, you tell your parents, you tell your friends. <laughs> yeah. I think actually if I, if I remember this right, you tell your parents, but then they're like, we want to announce it when you're on the show. So you have like a four day weekend where you're like. I literally get the call on like a Thursday, show up on Monday with your suits cuz you might perform. Don't tell anybody outside of your family, and we're gonna announce it like noon. And so it was one of those things at my first day at work at The Daily Show. Once it got announced, I immediately get flooded with people like, wait a minute, are you on TV now? (laughs) You don't have to (laughs) sleep on my couch anymore? You actually have a legitimate job? I
0: guess I'll tune in. I wanna ask you one more thing, Uh, worst moment in your career. Oh God.
1: Well. I would say, you know, I was on The Opposition, which I love doing The Opposition, and we did it for almost a year, 127 episodes, and we were proud of it. And the network calls, and they're like, this slot is a really tough, busy slot. We wanna get you out in the field, and we wanna do a show where it's you in the field. So we're gonna switch. We want you to do a field show and not be another guy behind the desk at 1130. And it was like, okay, I get that. That was a killer phone call to get, but I think the worst moment is you have to go tell your staff. And so there was quiet for a few days and then I had to go tell everybody there. And, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs in this industry, but the best thing about getting to work at a place is the consistency of the people around you. And I love that at the Daily Show and at the opposition. I had, I had a staff of close to a hundred people who are doing a bunch of different things and they're your family. And so to like walk in there that day and deliver that kind of news is, is heartbreaking.
0: Definitely yeah. a low. You know what? Let's end on a fun note. So, are you guys buds now with John Stewart? Can you call him up and be like, "John, let's go play some basketball."
1: <laughs> well, he would never play basketball with me because he's about this tall. <laughs> uh, he knows his weaknesses. Uh, he'd maybe play soccer because he's into that thing and he's that low. And he grew up in Jersey. <laughs> and he grew up in Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, John is great. John is always I've seen as a, a mentor, and I loved him before I got a chance to actually even be on the Daily Show, and so. You know, not not people are as fortunate there to not only get an opportunity, but then to walk in, learn from a guy like that who's like, "This is how we handle important topics. This is what I care about, and this is why you need to cling to the things you care about, no matter what people tell you." And this is how you treat employees. And so those are all things I I took from John,
0: and still try to seep any advice from whenever I can. All right, that's awesome. All right, everybody, you got to check out Clepper. Really interesting show, very different, and Mm -hmm. and especially for Comedy Central. So it's really trippy. I, I I want. I wanna check it out, especially given the conversation here and the different people that you talked to and the context that you gave it. Yeah. So it's on Thursday nights at 11.30 p.m. on Comedy Central. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thank really you, appreciate. man. All right. All right, guys. And obviously, since we had an extended conversation today, no post game, but we will see you have the power panel tomorrow. We'll see you there.